The Apostle Paul continues to be under guard in the fortress Antonia just above the temple in Jerusalem. After initially pulling Paul from a hostile crowd of Jews in the temple, the commander has had to extract Paul once again from danger after the apostle had split opinion between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and upset a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Claudius Lysias, the commander, still does not understand exactly what it is about Paul that troubles many Jews, but he knows he must protect him because he's a Roman citizen. And it would be understandable for Paul to be discouraged at this point, but as we saw last time, Jesus encourages him. The verse just before our passage tonight tells us, But the following night, the Lord, that is Jesus, stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. So you remember that Paul, for a long time, to be saying he wanted to be in Jerusalem by Pentecost. He has made it to Jerusalem. He has borne witness to Jesus there, and now his Lord assures him that he's going to achieve his other goal of bearing witness in Rome. So that's where we left Paul, still under Roman guard in the fortress. So we begin tonight with verses 12 and 13. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now, there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. So the Sanhedrin had not ruled against Jesus, and so some Jews now plan a new conspiracy against him. And they talk to um, selected Jewish leaders, um, likely perhaps not members of the Sanhedrin, but those who could influence the Sanhedrin, They were very serious in their plans because they take an oath neither to eat nor drink until they have killed Paul. Now that tells us this is a short-range plan because you can't go very long without drinking. They are ready to kill Paul very, very soon. And 40 of them are involved in this conspiracy. And we read verses 14 through 15. Then they came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow, as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So these conspirators approach some of the Jewish religious authorities. They have a plan. Uh, These are the chief priests and elders. said before they might not have been on the Sanhedrin, they could have been Sadducees because the chief priests and elders were sometimes among the Sadducees on the Sanhedrin. And that would make sense because it was the Pharisees who had taken sides with Paul. So they may be appealing to those who the previous day had been opposed to Paul. And these chosen leaders are to tell Claudius Lysias to bring Paul down from the fortress and back to a meeting of the Sanhedrin the next day for further examination. But they make clear that they don't want the apostle to ever reach that meeting. They say, we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, it seemed like a good plan that might um, actually be accomplished. There would probably be a small Roman guard accompanying Paul. And the conspirators plotted to overcome them and kill Paul while he was in transit out of the fortress. Now, this would likely lead to a violent response from the Roman commander if they succeeded, and they were taking a great risk in doing so. 
But their zeal likely made them willing to die if that is what it took to wipe out Paul. I think we could look at these folks as sort of having the mindset of the first century equivalent of modern suicide bombers. It's very risky to go against the Romans on something like this, but they were so zealous to kill Paul that they were willing to take that risk. Verse 16. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Now, interestingly, this is the only time in the New Testament where we hear directly about one of Paul's family members. It would be interesting to know more about him. Was this his only sibling? Did he have more? How many nephews and nieces did he have? We don't know. We do know that his sister had a son, and this is the nephew that we read about here. Remember that Paul has already testified that though he was born in Tarsus, he grew up in Jerusalem. So it's not surprising to us that he has family still settled in the city. Now his nephew, his sister's son, hears about the planned ambush. We don't know how, but somehow word reaches him, and he goes to the fortress to warn Paul. Now this may be a sign that at least some of Paul's family is supportive of his ministry. We can't say that for certain. They may just want to preserve his life, uh, but they're certainly aware of his ministry, aware of the circumstances, and reach out to help. And the language used here of Paul's nephew indicates that he was probably a teenager or in his 20s. He's a young man. And it really would not be surprising that in this circumstance he would have access to Paul. Remember, Paul is in protective custody. He's not in prison. He's not been charged with any crime. Furthermore, he's a Roman citizen who would have certain privileges. And we know that even those who were imprisoned with charges against them were allowed visitors who were responsible to bring them food. So, not surprisingly, Paul's nephew is successfully able to reach his uncle. Picking up at verse 17. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. So Paul talks to one of the centurions, and he gives him, he makes a request of him, take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. Now, why would a Roman centurion do what Paul tells him to do? Well, first of all, we've seen that Paul's level of citizenship is higher even than the commander who's in charge. He's certainly higher in the level of citizenship to the centurions. Furthermore, they had already beaten Paul before they knew he was a Roman citizen. They were they could still get in trouble if that became known. And so it was sort of in their best interest to work with Paul. Now, the apostle does not reveal his nephew's message to the centurion. It seems like he doesn't want word to get out about this plot. He certainly doesn't want the plotters to know that he knows. But the centurion dutifully takes the young man to Claudius Lysias, announcing that he has come from Paul with a message. Verse 19 Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside, and asked privately, What is it that you have to tell me? So Claudius Lysias seems to recognize the sensitive nature of what Paul's nephew has to say, and he takes him aside for a private conversation where they won't be overheard. And the following verses summarize that conversation. Picking up at 20, and he said, The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. 
but do not yield to them. For more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. This young man is is rather bold. He not only informs the commander of the details of the plot, but he sort of tells him what to do. He says, don't yield to them. He tells Lysias that the conspirators are only waiting for his word to accede to the request when it comes to send Paul to the Sanhedrin. And if he does, they will surely kill Paul. Verse 22, so the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. Again, the commander wants to keep this under wraps, so he tells Paul's nephew to depart, but don't tell anyone about it. And he develops a plan to bypass the Jews, thus thwarting their conspiracy by sending Paul up the ladder in the Roman judicial system. So we read about that in the next two verses. And he called for two centurions, saying, Prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. So he clearly recognizes the danger of Paul remaining any longer in Jerusalem. He certainly can't have him killed as a Roman citizenship and under his um, protection. So he plans to have him taken to Felix, the governor in Caesarea. And safety is clearly a major concern in light of what he has heard. And so we see that by the force that is sent with them. They're sending one man, Paul, with 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. Now, knowing that there were likely 1,000 Roman soldiers stationed in Jerusalem, this is nearly half of the force that is there. And they're also told to provide mounts, plural, for Paul. Now, there's various possibilities of of what this means. We know that by chapter 27, Luke is using we again, the first person plural. So it could be that Luke and some of his companions were allowed to travel as part of the entourage. Alternately, it could be that the second um, horse was simply for whatever baggage Paul had, whatever possessions he had that was going with him, or, as we'll see, This is going to be a hasty journey. It could be that they had two horses, so when the first one got tired carrying Paul, they could switch and have the other one. We're not sure. But this is the group that heads out, and they go in haste, leaving at the third hour of the night. That's about 9 to 9.30 that very night. So remember, the, the Jews had plotted to get Paul the next morning. He's not going to give them any opportunity under the cover of darkness, He's going to send him out with an amazing amount of soldiers to protect him. And with Paul, they take a formal letter to the governor, Felix. So we read about that starting in verse 25. He wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. When I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you, and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. 
And we know from other sources that this letter takes a standard form for official communications of that day. It begins with the sender's name, Claudius Lysias. Now, I've been calling the commander Claudius Lysias for a few chapters now because of this verse. This is actually the first time we learn his, his actual name. And uh, it is an interesting name. We know something about it. His personal name was Lysias. But the Roman name Claudius preceding that name indicates that he acquired his citizenship during the reign of Claudius, which is from A.D. 41 through 54. So his name is Lysias. He goes by Claudius Lysias because Claudius was the emperor when he became a citizen. The name of the sender is followed by an address to the recipient, to the most excellent governor, Felix. And several commentators note that this term that's translated most excellent um, is actually not appropriate technically for Felix. Felix, the governor of Judea, was a slave who had become a freedman, but he was not of the equestrian class that would be addressed with this kind of terminology. So it could be that Lysias is, is flattering Felix, thinking that a slightly excessive expression of respect could do no harm. And he takes some liberties in the body of the letter. You probably noticed that as you listen to it. His account of events does not exactly line up with the account of the events that we read about. And um, commentator Dennis Johnson has a good summary of that. So let me just read what he wrote. Lysias condensed and rearranged the events surrounding the riot in the temple to highlight his service to the empire and its citizens. His letter implies that his first rescue of Paul was motivated by his commitment to defend a Roman citizen rather than to um, arrest an Egyptian revolutionary, which is what we read. The Tribune also conveniently omitted the significant detail that ignorant of Paul's citizenship, he had ordered Paul be scourged in a preliminary interrogation. The rest of his summary, however, is accurate enough. Once he learned that Paul was a citizen, Lysias had genuinely become Paul's protector both in the tumult at the Sanhedrin and in acting quickly to transport Paul out of the reach of the conspirators. So this is politics. These are two politicians. And when Lysias sends Paul to Felix, he does so with a letter that that sort of puffs himself up pretty well. And he actually lies to do it, bending the truth, taking things out of order. But it presents him as a very honorable um, officer in the Roman army, And he sends this to Lysias. Perhaps the most significant portion of the letter is this sentence. I found out that Paul was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. So the commander, the Roman commander in Jerusalem, did not think the charges brought by the Jews against Paul that dealt only with breaking their law rose to the level of him deserving punishment from Rome. So he's sending Paul with the suggestion that he hasn't found anything that would rise to the level that deserves Roman punishment. Nevertheless, he gives him safe passage so that the governor, the next level up, can consider the matter. And he says that um, his accusers will come and will be able to press the charges directly against him there. So now we read how his commands were carried out. Verses 31 and 32. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and returned to the barracks. 
So the first day, well, it's they're traveling at night, so they leave 9 or 9.30 at night, and they're traveling from Jerusalem to the town of Antipatris, where there's a military installation, so it's going to be a safe place to spend the night. It's a trip about 35 miles to the northwest, and it is about halfway to Caesarea, their ultimate destination. And this portion was the most dangerous part of the journey. The Jewish historian Josephus records several events involving travelers being waylaid on this road out of Jerusalem. It was known to be a dangerous place to travel. Even large groups have sometimes been attacked and plundered. And this is probably why um, all of those spearmen and soldiers are sent along for this portion of the journey to protect Paul. And also why the soldiers are sent back to the fortress Antonia in Jerusalem the next day. In other words, they've gotten through that difficult, dangerous part of the journey. There's still 70 horsemen who can then accompany Paul to Caesarea. They're going to be going through Gentile territory. There's not going to be the risk um, that was there in the first half of their journey. Then verses 33 through 35. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. So they reach Caesarea, they present Paul, and they present the letter to Felix. The governor asked in which province Paul was born. One of the reasons for this is he had the option of transferring the jurisdiction of Paul's case to the, the um, region in which he had been born. In this case, um, Tarsus is in Cilicia, and he decides not to send Paul there. Um, it might be because um, it looks like there's not much of a case against Paul. Why bother somebody else? Um, we're not sure exactly why, but he decides that he's going to conduct the matter there at the next stage. Also, his Jewish accusers had to travel from Jerusalem, so it would be closer for them to reach there. So again, that might be one reason to keep it in Cilicia. Rome took very seriously the right of accusers to um, present their case. So for the time being, Felix houses Paul in the Praetorium, which was the governor's residence that had been built by Herod the Great. Paul thus continues in Roman custody and protection while he awaits his trial. Now, as we reflect on this unfolding situation for Paul, we should remember Jesus' words to him back in verse 11. Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness in Rome. And with faith in this promise, Paul entrusts himself to God's providence. Um, commentator Guy Waters notes signs of God's providence in this episode. It's good to sort of reflect from that perspective. He writes, it is striking to see the diversity of instruments that God in his providence employs to effect his fixed purpose. A young man who happens to overhear the plot of Paul's would-be assassins. A tribune, that's Claudius Lysias, who, while not flawless, has enough of a sense of fairness and justice to take extraordinary measures to protect his charge. A cohort of Roman troops who carry out their mission promptly and successfully. A Roman governor, Felix, who, on this occasion at least, treats Paul with procedural fairness. 
Latching on to Jesus' promise, Paul was able to trust his Savior and his Savior's good purpose for him, even as he watched what otherwise would have appeared to be a bewildering cyclone of events circling around, swirling around him. Now, I titled this message, Paul Under God's Providence, just because I wanted to highlight this point. He's been under God's providence the whole time. He's going to continue to be under God's providence. But it's worth reflecting upon that in this particular narrative. And think of what it tells us. We are not likely to have a direct message from Jesus that Jesus come and stands before us the way Paul experienced. But we do have the word of God, don't we? And in that word, we have many promises to which to cling. Paul had the promise that he was going to be able to bear testimony in Rome. So whatever happened, he knew one way or another he was going to get there. And as we'll find, it's quite a circuitous way that he does. We don't have that promise, but we do have promises. Here's just a few of them. Hebrews 13, 5. God himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Romans 8, 23. And we, 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And Romans 8, 39. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Philippians 1, 6, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And the day of Christ's return is ever nearer and should be the source in Paul's language of our blessed hope. And God is just as sovereign over your life as he was over Paul's. And you can trust his providence to work for your ultimate blessing in accord with his unbreakable promises. Let us walk in Paul's footsteps by resting in God's promises and the love he has shown us through Jesus, whatever circumstances may be swirling around us. God is in control, and he exercises his control for his people, for you and for me, just as much as he did for the Apostle Paul.